Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I am a comedian based in Chicago who survived a coma. Life was not resolved, had a bunch of questions, and now I'm asking them of my guests, including M.E. O'Brien this week, uh, the second guest this week, M.E. O'Brien, co-wrote Everything for Everyone. Oh, why am I missing the name of the subtitle? The Oral History of the New York Commune 2052 to 2072 with Eman Abdelhadi, my guest, on Tuesday. This is the first time I've done this. Release two separate episodes by interrelated guests in the same week. I've had couples on before, pairs, but... There's nothing like a, a one-on-one conversation. So I'm very excited for you to hear from Emmy O'Brien. Please note there is a mention, there are a little a couple mentions of suicide. It's a heavy show. Sometimes we have fun, but I want people to know that kind of stuff. The show is independent, so please tell your friends about it. Subscribe in your app. If you use Apple, post a review. It's it seems like it doesn't make a difference, but it really does. And go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr for the full conversation with Emmy O'Brien and all my guests and the after show. This is your after show. Also, today I am I am posting my my new newsletter called Definitive Answers. This is DaveMarr.substack.com. All that's in the show notes, but I, I mention it because I did tease in a man's episode that I will be talking about my newfound love of the Purge movies and t- TV show because that's how good Amanda and Emmy's book is. It got me hooked on much worse speculative apocalyptic future fiction. The $15 patrons on Patreon are called my pigeon level patrons. Those people get shout outs every time. I apologize if you heard my cat in the background. They are Susie Carroll, Fred Fidoa, Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, John Lee, Shuba Singh, and Debo. And that's all I've got. So please enjoy this conversation with M.E. O'Brien. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it like it's mine. Paint your hell. Like a personal hell designed for you. Well, this is related to what I said in the email. There in okay. Tibetan Buddhism, there are 16 hells. They are described in depth. And the vast majority of creatures are in hell. And as Buddhists, we make a vow, a commitment to empty the hells. No one in hell should be there. They're all there as a result of the tingles of their own mind you know, the hate and terror that they brought into uh, their their rebirth. And so everyone in hell should be free. There is no just God that puts them in hell. There's no, like, proper order of things. Like, uh, So everyone in hell should be free. And when I read about the hell, there's one that really speaks to me, that I am like, yes, that has happened to me. And it is the black line hell. And in it, uh, they draw demons, presumably, draw thick black lines on your body and then saw your body into parts along those lines and then reassemble your body and do it again for millions of years. Oh wow. Okay. Is there, a, other than the obvious, is there a reason that resonates with you? It feels no, silly just to compared ask. compared to all the other hells, I'm like, that that's the one that speaks to me. That's the one that's familiar. That's the one, you know, like, I mean, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, you've been through all of the hells, all of the realms, many, 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 many times, countless times. Okay, okay. And, but so, you know, who knows, like, why one speaks to you or doesn't, but the others feel a little abstract, and that one just doesn't feel abstract at all. That one feels, like, really quite immediate and almost palpable. Yeah. Um, and the other hells are as bad, like there are a lot of them. 
Um, like what are some 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 highlights? Uh, like well, how what are the quick hits? The of what cold are, hills, what hills are, are divided up. So to be clear, um, one I alluded to this: Buddhist ideas of hell are very different than Christian or Muslim ideas of hell. The way you end up there, what it means about you, what it means about the cosmos—all of that is very different. So that's important. And yeah. two, because of the trauma of being exposed to fire and brimstone Christianity, most American convert convert Buddhists really avoid any mention of the hells. And there is sure. a whole set of Buddhist teachings that are like the hells are metaphors for like states of your mind. And that is true. That's a canonical part of, of Buddhism. But it's they're also as real as this world is real. Uh, simultaneously. And uh, there are very few English-speaking teachers who will ever mention them at all. And I just happen to study under a teacher who's like, let's talk about the hells. Maybe there's something <laughs> to learn from them. <laughs> the fact that you all are so freaked out by them doesn't seem like a reason not to talk about them. So I, I we have an exposure. My sangha has an exposure to talking about the hells that is rare in English-speaking North American Buddhist communities. And so most Buddhists, wow. you know, North America know nothing about the hells unless they were raised in a in an Asian sure. uh, Buddhist family. Um, so some of the other hells, there are a bunch of cold hells, and they are split up based on the number of different parts that your body splits into when it gets so cold, it freezes solid and then fragments. So. Okay. And they and you split open like this, which is like a lotus flower opening, which is a Buddhist symbol of enlightenment. Sure, so you sure. split open like the lotus flower. So it's like the eight petal hell, the 16 petal hell. Like these are different. <laughs> <laughs> oh like, my God. Yeah. Uh, there is the, uh, there, the, there are lots of hot hells, lots of them. Uh, there's the hell where you are um, resurrected and you are in the middle of a battlefield and there's a gigantic army attacking you and you are in a gigantic army and you crash against each other and tear each other apart like an epic movie. And then suddenly a moon or a mountain comes down from the sky and crushes you all, anyone who survives. And then the mountain goes back up and then you're all resurrected and you all go to war again. <laughs> And you do this for millions and millions and millions of years. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, they're the they I, go on and on. I mean, there's a bunch of them. They're they're yeah yeah. 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 I because I appreciate your sense of humor about it, oh, but yeah. you also <laughs> do be, like believe this is literal truth, right? Well, literal truth is a complicated term. Like, okay, this okay. reality is not literal truth in Buddhism. This reality okay. is like we carve it up with our concepts and we make it, we make, you know, we're whatever the hell is actually going on in reality is so rich and vast and ineffable and extraordinary. And instead we here, I think I'm on this podcast talking to you <laughs> and like there are so many concepts at play in that. That my mood coming in here, my ideas yeah. about who I am promoting this book, my concepts about who you are, the name dropping you did in the Evo, like all of that's at play in our experience of this reality. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what I, I have to pause you about the name dropping. Yeah. How, okay. It sounds like I may have miscalculated a no, bit. No, no problem. Who it's all good. Was I? No, no, because it's you're right. It's very intentional. You were, and I'm looking about it. You were, you didn't even talk about okay. it. You know, you were very. Yeah. you had a sense of humor about it. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a need to establish, try yourself. to, yeah, yeah, to prove legitimacy as quickly as possible. But if you go too fast with that, it. It goes no, the opposite way. It's all good. You know, I, I mean, you were so <laughs> transparent about it. But these are all concepts we bring to this situation. So, so yeah. say what's literally real at this moment is very complicated. But insofar as you're real and I'm real, I presume the hells are real. What do you hope happens when you die? I 
To be clear, I have no idea. I have no special information or knowledge, but I am a practicing Tibetan Buddhist, and we are told things about the structure of reality and about uh, the sort of experience of the great teachers. And very gradually, over many years of practice, we encounter and confirm some aspects of what they tell us. So they tell us something about the human mind. And like six years later, we have a meditative experience, which just very clear to us that that was correct. Um, but many aspects of what they say, you know, are impossible to verify. We, you know, we have no idea. But what they say is very clear and has been very consistent for a long time, for a couple thousand years, and is potentially compatible with other sort of afterlife experiences people speculate on. And that's that um, when we die, uh, they, there's a, a rapid succession of events that happen over the course of a few seconds. And then uh, if you're not paying attention, they're over before you even notice, because dying is very disorienting. And then you hang out around your body uh, for a few days, yeah. and you're very stressed out trying to figure out why you're there, and you don't know what happened. And then you go wandering off, and you go wandering off into a reality where sort of everything you see is kind of a metaphor for parts of your mind. And you don't remember who you are and you don't remember why you're there, but like you, you see things around you and you more or less get sort of the events of your life reflected back to you to, to some extent in various forms. Uh, and that helps shape your mindset in that space to really, if you're not super mindful, to be very dominated by the emotions you've cultivated in the course of your life. So if you spent a lot of time talking shit on the internet, you have like some ra rageful seething that comes to dominate your mind in the space. And then eventually you find there's a big storm that hits and it gets windy and rainy, all metaphors that you've sort of created. And you run for shelter. And the sh you see various shelters that are compelling to you. And there are all various forms of rebirth. Um, and you enter the shelter. And that is, if you're being reborn as a human, which is very rare, that is entering a womb. And when you're reborn, that is a reality that is fabricated out of the dominant thoughts and feelings with which you lived your life and with, of which have come to really dominate your experience of this in-between state. And you share that reality with other people who have a similar kind of mindset. And that reality might be shaped by bliss or hatred or hunger or ignorance or all sorts of different emotions that might have dominated it. And there are six realms that correspond to the six major emotions. And in every one of the realms, you um, you live a temporary life. No, no beings are immortal. You live a temporary life there until you've sort of exhausted that kind of accumulated weight of those thoughts and feelings. And those lives might be, you might be born as a god, like as a Hindu god, and live in utter bliss. You might be born in a hell realm. You know, it's as similar as the Hindu cosmology. You might be born as an animal, yeah. as a hungry ghost, as a human. But unlike Hinduism, there's nothing just about that. It's just, it's just your, the, whatever shit you've accumulated. And the only thing worth doing, no matter where you are, is to try to figure out how to get the hell out. And that that's the necessary task. That's what we all have to do. We have to get out of this sort of endless cycling up and down the realms that we've been doing for all eternity. Um, and the so the only thing that, to answer your question, that you hope for in a rebirth is that you were born in circumstances where practicing the Dharma is fortuitously possible, where you have a, where you have are able to hear the words of the Dharma, you're able to encounter the teacher, you're able to read mm. the Dharma, you're able to have enough stability in your life to meditate, but enough misery that you're motivated to meditate. And and you know, once in a while people talk about sort of super special places where practicing the Dharma is really easily easy. The kind of Buddhism I do doesn't talk about those as much, but pretty much the best possible thing that could happen 
is a lifetime, a little bit like the lifetimes we lead, uh, where we are miserable enough that we sort of set out looking for a new set of teachings, but like stable enough that meditating every day isn't impossible. Um, and we hope that we take full advantage of those lives when they arise, because they're extremely rare. And instead, most lives are dominated by far too much misery to ever be able to practice. Um, wow. Or a handful of them are so blissed out, they don't even see any reason to practice. Like mm. that the gods are so blissed out, they are oblivious to the misery of others. So they can't cultivate compassion or care or helping others. They can't do anything worth doing. Um, they're just living in their blissful state. And then the other the other side of these teachings that I mentioned is that there is a traditional set of teachings that you can find all of these realms in the human mind right now. You can look around and see people that are too blissed out to be aware of the new ones. Yeah. You can yeah. see people trapped in terror and hate. You can see people, you know, you can look around and find this in the human condition. I mean... Normally, I wouldn't say normally, but occasionally on the show, I struggle to bring someone's abstract ideas into concrete, visual, mm -hmm. sensory. You have provided me with way too many, each incredibly fascinating, visceral examples of different things that I feel like what you're presenting me with is a years long path of stuff. This is, this is the taste of, there's no way I could go down one of these roads and find and, and exhaust what is interesting about it to me. So instead I am curious how you came to Tibetan Buddhism. Sure. Um, so I was in high school. I was a revolutionary anarchist. I was very morally and politically driven. I really saw sort of being as revolutionary as you could possibly be as like the fundamental task. And that continued through college. Uh, and, and how did you get there? What what brought you to that in high school? Well, now you're just going back and back. Who knows That's right. I am. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, but I haven't even told you the story of how I got there. We'll the get there. We'll get there. Okay. Um, I don't know. I was depressed. I was exposed to elements of the left. I had a lot of rage. Um, and yeah. And radicalizing made sense. It made sense okay. to me. Probably, you know, I... I Sort of my early political encounters, one was sort of with a multiracial, multi-issue, social justice, anti-oppression youth group that sort of helped give an analysis about how the world fits together. And the other was uh, doing ancient forest defense work in Oregon, where, you know, the old growth forests are these magnificently wow. beautiful things that I, I grew up backpacking. So I spent a lot of time in them. And the lowland ancient forests are all being rapidly destroyed forever. And, you know, that's uh, that's the kind of thing that's more or less worth killing over if you have the opportunity. You know, mm -hmm. like, and so, like, on the one hand, I had sort of comprehensive rich politics. And on the other hand, I had something that's really, like, like an issue on fire that is very compelling and very motivating and very gripping of the soul. And yeah. uh, and then, you know, between the two of those, I, I'm like, well, the task is revolution. We have to figure that out. Um, so you carry that through college. Yeah, I carried that through college. And I was just very driven by it. Like if anyone pointed out that any aspect of my behavior, behavior was not in keeping with like a pure revolutionary mm. drive, that would be a real motivation to change. Um, okay. Meanwhile, I got into reading some very wacky philosophy. I read a lot of post-structuralist uh, gender Which is theory. what? Who are uh, the big names there? Derrida. Jacques Derrida is the big post-structuralist. Okay. Okay. And so I read a lot of wacky theory, and, uh, and I found it helpful in my thinking. But I was sort of interested in, like, the kind of limits of human knowledge in a way, or like how we speak about the world or what the world is made out of, you know, some big philosophical questions that are related to political concerns in complex ways. And I was sort of mulling this over. And meanwhile, my dad, who I loved a lot and was a, uh, 
I grew up backpacking with him and other things. He converted to Tibetan Buddhism and it was very helpful for him. He had been an alcoholic and other things and it was very helpful for him. And we would occasionally chat and notice these sort of intersections between post-structuralist philosophy and Buddhism, what the very wacky things Tibetan Buddhists have to say about the nature of reality. And so I saw these intersections a little bit here or there, and I'm like, that's interesting. But I really related to them on an intellectual level. And I got out of college and moved around and ended up meditating sporadically with a Zen group in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I moved. And was a little bit interested in it and then moved to Philly and was meditating with a Zen group there. Zen sort of appealed to me more than Tibetan Buddhism. And then um, a friend of mine killed herself and the circumstances of her killing herself, like she had obviously a lot of difficulties and who knows why she did it. I don't know. But she and I had both been somewhat mistreated by people who were acting out of what they really felt to be radical political motivations, that they really felt themselves to be like doing politically the right thing. And it kind of screwed over both my friend and me in different ways. Mm-hmm. And and it was sort of a, a moment of being like, oh, being as radical as you can possibly be may not be enough. That actually there might be a kind of internal violence that manifests as external violence in um, not just against our enemies, but against everything like that there might be something if we're always trying to be as radical as we can be, and we don't have another lens on that, a lens that you could call kindness, care, you know, various other things. If we don't have another lens on that, like actually potentially it could be extremely vicious and harmful. Um, That there is a sort of fierce cutting that I was very committed to And that that might not end you up where you need to be. And so I didn't give up any of the politics, but I'm like, I need a path that is about kindness. I need a path that is about becoming a more kind person and not just relentlessly trying to be kind, but like actually cultivating a certain kind of authentic kindness that might require like softness or stillness or like these traits that were very different than what I had been cultivating for years. They were really like, what the hell is going on and what can we do about it, you know, in every situation. Um, and and I, it really clicked with me that what I encountered in Buddhism was that. And that uh, what had been a kind of intellectual understanding became a very urgent task, like that, that uh, pursuing Buddhism seriously was a really necessary part of a good life for me. And I, so I practiced every day for the next few years and I got a little burnt out with Zen and a little frustrated. And I think there were some ways that I, my practice kind of stayed shallow that I sort of feigned being deep with the practice without really being there. And Tibetan Buddhism is very different. And one of the things, it's sort of endpoint is very similar to Zen, but how it gets there is different. And one of the things that's different is it offers you a lot of incremental practices that are designed to sort of engage your neurosis where it's actually at, to like like the gears lock into place and they forcefully turn and your mind starts shifting, you know, over the course of the practice. And I found it very helpful, the kind of incremental path to like actually be honest about my neurosis. Um, And then in Tibetan Buddhism, for all the advanced practices, they require a relationship with the teacher. And so I started going to see all the teachers, and there are not that many of them in the world, uh, all the great teachers when they would come through New York. And I saw this one woman speak, uh, a Tibetan nun, um, runs a nunnery in India. And I was just like, and she sat down and she would talk for six hours without notes about, you know, some text. And she would, you know, give breaks once in a while, but would move during the breaks. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the smartest person I've ever met. 
and that isn't necessarily what you're supposed to look for in a teacher. But yeah, for yeah. me, being very driven by questions of being, you know, uh, being very smart as a person, that mm-hmm. was the way I was able to sort of grab hold of what she yeah. was offering. And so I began, what do they say you're supposed to look for? Oh, somebody who is comes from the right lineage or uh, like a rigorous lineage, someone who is extremely well studied, someone who is extremely consistent in their ethical behavior, somebody who, you know, seems serious about being interested in teaching you, you know, all, all sorts yeah. of things. And, yeah, yeah. you know, all things that she has. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I was drawn to her intelligence. But there are sort of like more magical connections that happen too. And uh, so I began to study under her. And then there was an incident uh, a few years in um, to my work with her where um, I watched how she dealt with somebody who had uh, engaged in a lot of sexual harassment in the in the community. And I had seen sexual harassment in a lot of left spaces and seen people really unable to deal with it in an effective mm-hmm. and positive way. And yeah. being as radical as we could be, not actually quite working. Like I have supported and joined in many splits and confrontations to stop sexual assault. And I think we did the right then. And then in the aftermath, the organization we were in is destroyed. (laughs) And it's like, what should we have done? I'm not sure. And I watched how she dealt with it with tremendous skill and love and a completely uncompromising commitment to stop the behavior. And, and it was amazing. And I just never seen anyone deal with this situation. I'd seen many times, never seen anyone deal with something, deal with it so skillfully as she did. And it really, that really helped deepen my practice. And so I've been practicing with her for 18 years now. Um, And I, you know, I tried to meditate a couple hours a day, hour and 45 minutes a day or so. I have all these practices she's given me. I do in the morning and the evening. And then I try to go to the retreats when she announces them and learn new practices. And the retreats are usually her teaching sort of philosophy eight hours a day with a whole lot of like telling us what we're doing wrong. And then, and then at the end sort of giving us a new practice that is sort of embodies the philosophy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, anything you're doing an hour and 45 minutes a day, and it sounds like you're structuring. I mean, most people, there's only so much travel people are able to do in a given year. I mean, this is like structuring your life. Th- yeah. This is dominating the places you go, the the people you hang out with, Definitely. what you're able to commit to in a given yeah. time, right? Absolutely. Um, my, it's interesting in that I don't know that many Buddhists. I don't socialize with that many Buddhists. I know the people in my Sangha, um, but at the vast majority of my friends are not Buddhists. And the vast majority of my friends know very little about the Buddhism that I do. And part of it is the Vajrayana is a secret thing. Like, you don't brag about it. It would be very inappropriate to sort of have a medallion or wear a mala in a place people could see. It's like something that you do privately. And then you live a normal life on the outside. Uh, And you just happen to live that life with kindness if you're if you do the practice as well like that's what they're supposed to lead to um and you're never supposed to proselytize never supposed to sort of try to convince anybody of it and and in my sangha you are absolutely not supposed to teach that the idea of like me running a workshop about buddhism or writing an article about buddhism would be very inappropriate until i had been practicing much more substantively and much longer than i have so while other things, you know, there are lots of topics I write, I write about, but I tend right. not to really mention Buddhism. Um, and it's just a sort of relatively private thing that I do that I mention to my friends and they ask questions about it. And I answer their questions as I'm doing with you now, but I'll yeah. rarely ever bring it up. Um, the times it's come up the most is when I'm reading high philosophy, like Hegel and Spinoza study groups. 
uh, you know, where it's like, what is reality? And I'm like, oh, okay. I have an opinion about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is the afterlife? And I'm like, oh, I, I actually just read a book about that. <laughs> but usually people don't ask me those questions. They ask questions like, you know, what do you think of how capitalism works in this context? And I'm like, well, right, this is my right. analysis. And Buddhism doesn't play a role in that at all. Um, yeah. There are a lot of intersections between psychoanalysis and Buddhism, and I'm in psychoanalytic training now, sure. but I haven't yet entered into spaces where mentioning those intersections makes much sense. Like I'll offhandedly mention I'm a Buddhist practitioner at some point, but, mm -hmm. um, but like I haven't yet met one of the many famous Buddhist psychoanalytic people, and I haven't yet pursued the intersections of them. So I have these sort of relatively separate streams in my life that are all connected in my head, but but the people in them that I'm in them with don't necessarily know that they're connected, uh, and they aren't connected for them, you know. Yeah, and the thing that's blowing my mind is that when we emailed about this, you said you have a fairly you have a, a religious practice that you adhere to fairly strictly, and so it might make the conversation less interesting mm -hmm. and the fact that you think <laughs> the fact that you think any of what you just said is less interesting like i was talking to my partner i was like that what i didn't even know what the practice was i'm like I, i'm walking in blind are we talking mormonism are we talking mm -hmm. whatever you know i've had other people and uh who are who are mormons on the show you know and like uh so i'm so i'm open to that you know mm -hmm. i was like whatever this is but the idea that I already knew, you know, if something is built out like that, for me, that's interesting. But now you're describing all the shapes and structures of the building. And I'm like, the idea that you would have said that you said to me, so it might be a little boring. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I, um, well, thank you. I mean, you, you have a different structure of interest than I do or lots of people sure, do in that sure. I part of like as an oral historian or as a psychoanalyst or as lots of things mm -hmm. I pay attention when somebody starts talking about something they don't understand when someone's like at the limits of their knowledge they're saying something new uh perhaps about their own past or their own life or their own mind but they're like discovering it as they speak and when people have like relatively packaged narratives, I just kind of tune out. It's like, it's not that therapeutically helpful. And sure. it usually makes for boring oral histories if you don't really know what you're doing, which sounds like you do. Um, but it's, it's much harder. Like I'm always interested in like, what is it you don't know that you're currently thinking about? And that's, yeah. that, that sort of edge is where I tried to do my pedagogy and my therapy practice and my oral history work. And that edge, I always think, is, is compelling. And when it comes to all this stuff about, you know, cosmology, basically, I'm just like, well, I don't actually know, but this is what I was told. <laughs> and it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways straightforward, yeah. in others. It's very I odd. mean, and, and I... I guess what's what's nice about it is it's not I mean I I hear what you're saying about prepackaged spiels but there are certain spiels that are much more available on yeah. western american shelves so to speak than the one that you're giving totally I imagine what we've talked about so far will carry into this as well but the next segment is about funeral planning. Hmm. Um, what thoughts do you have? Perhaps there are Tibetan Buddhist rituals that are part of this, um, or if not, or in addition, what are your thoughts, preferences, distastes, where you're like, I definitely don't want this? When my dad died, I did my best to coordinate the proper procedures, and they are to leave the body undisturbed for three days. So we went out and bought a lot of dry ice and sort of set them up in the living room oh. and changed the dry ice regularly. And you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to call the deaf people quickly. 
but it's not it's not that enforced you know like we called them after three days and they showed up and they were like what was the time of death and i told them and they're like okay whatever and took them off to be cremated but you leave the body undisturbed for three days and you don't want people crying around the body too much because you don't want to stress the person out you want you want it to be relatively chill because they're already stressed out enough you know and uh and then you pray you pray for them and there's uh his entire sangha came and filled the living room and his teacher was there and they did all their prayers that they do every week but they did it with his body there and um once they were done i asked the teacher i'm like uh his teacher his lama i asked the lama what is it we should do now and he's like oh i don't really care he's done like you do whatever you want and he's like are you going to have him cremated and i'm like yeah probably and they're like could you have them put this on his chest when they light him on fire and it was a mandala drawing it was a sort of sacred drawing and i'm like Mm. yeah i can ask and they they were happy to do that but i'm like are there any funeral services or anything he's like no no he's moved on he's not in the room anymore so i don't really care what you do like He's, um, you know, if he, if people think positively of him, that can be helpful to him in the, in the sp- space he's in now, which mm-hmm. is somewhere mm-hmm. else. So, like doing something sounds nice. And I was um, on the peripheral. I was a part of a of a Buddhist community that's that I wasn't a serious part of, but I engaged. That is different than my main community. And different than his. But one of the things they did is they had various kind of westernized adaptations of Tibetan Buddhist elements. So they had a funeral service that involved other people that they had developed. And so I had one of them come down from Portland, Oregon. This was in Eugene. And do, you know, sort of lead us in the ritual element. And then people just told stories about him. Um, And the main distinguishing feature of the ritual element is instead of there being tons and tons and tons of pictures, there's only one picture of the person and you burn it during the ritual. Um, Wow. And then there are no more pictures. It's a picture from their past? Yeah. Or you take a picture at the... No, it's just a picture of them whenever from their past. Okay. And uh, And then the person was done with the ritual part. And lots of people just told stories about my dad. And some of them were pretty shocking. Some of them involved like very heavy drug use from earlier in his sure, life. And sure, like sure. That. They were just all over the place, you know. And some people, he had led a lot of different lives. And some people were a little surprised. Uh, and But, you know, we were just sort of packed in. And, um, and then we scattered his ashes a couple of weeks later in a place he'd like to go hiking. Uh, and that was it. Um, and that seems good, you know. It doesn't seem I won't be as lucky as my dad in that my teacher will not be in the same city I'm in, mm-hmm. and uh, convincing my sangha to come, my New York uh, practice partners to come to my living room and practice with me. They're dead. It's not likely, you know. Chances are I will just be uh, cremated relatively quickly. But I do hope my teacher is notified and there are things that she can do to sort of help a person after they die, even from very far away. And certainly my sangha will, uh, we do practices for everyone who's passed away. And uh, we Buddhists have no rituals at all when it comes to marriage or Mm. birth. We really don't care that much about those things. But there are a lot of rituals when it comes to death. And those those rituals are the ones that, you know, they did with my father uh, in the room uh, before his funeral. Um, and my general approach to sort of memorial events is people having a chance to tell stories and having a chance to be sad about it. That's a very well summarized way to describe a funeral (laughs) really like because people talk about food people talk about you know uh capsules devices into which receptacles into which they'll go but um yeah a chance to be sad and a chance to tell stories seems pretty at the core of all of it yeah 
next question comes from the last one man show I did in which it's set in the afterlife, this fictional afterlife where I'm asking people, do you, um, I'm, I'm kind of giving people the introduction to features of the afterlife. And one of this fe- one of the features is that you get to fully relive one memory. You're the rest aren't wiped. You just get to choose one to pop into and out of whenever you'd like, however many times you'd like, but in a very visceral way. So if that were the case, what memory would you choose to relive? Um, well, I read a lot of science fiction, you know, the science fiction novel that I wrote. And in uh-huh. science fiction, reliving memories is uh, the path of addiction and mental illness. Reliving memories is a very common trope in science fiction. And the same thing always happens, which is people get addicted to a very specific moment of their life. They, they sort of are stuck in a loop where they want to play it over and over and over. And in um, uh, in Freudian theory, we talk about um, there's one of his greatest greatest psychoanalytic pieces of writing ever is is a is a beautiful sketch of the both the history of psychoanalytic technique and explaining the sort of technique he eventually arrived at. And the name of the essay is "Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through." And he s- says at the beginning. People would come in with all these symptoms, and I was like, they're traumatized. I understand now. And I still believe that. So we thought, if only we could get them to remember the trauma. And then we got them to remember the trauma. And sometimes they were better, and sometimes they weren't. So that was puzzling. And then we noticed, when we were really paying attention, that they would repeat the trauma in their relationship with their animals. And uh, they would repeat it over and over and over again. And they repeated their trauma over and over again with everyone in their life. And that what needed to be done was not just remembering, but working through. And that the task of working through is ultimately being able to not repeat your trauma. Similarly, in Buddhism, what enlightenment is, among other things, is the chance not to be reborn in these endless cycles based on your accumulated actions. Instead, like, if you're at one phase of it, you're reborn based on where you're needed, not based on your accumulated past actions. And then if you keep going at some point, supposedly, you reach a point where you realize that sort of dissolving into the universe is what's needed most of all, for whatever reason that is not intuitive to us now. And, um, and that it's being able to not repeat that is the goal, ultimately. That repetition is what we do and is what we're drawn to doing over and over and over again. And the greatest gift would be to be able to not repeat, to do something new or to not do. Either way, like to be able to not repeat. And that, I think, is the that's the goal. And that's what communism would be like. That's what sort of overcoming class society would be like a chance for us all to do something new together. And not under the sort of endless compulsion of impersonal market domination that we all live under right now. Yeah. So that's your um, fascinating, elegant way of completely tearing down the foundations of the of the question. Yeah, it's just I'm like, well, all that other people repeat. <laughs> I mean, I hope they're not my patients. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> What's your coma? Because I, uh, a lot of this came from the fact that eight years ago now, I was in a coma for a month and uh, was almost taken off life support. And so that's the question is just metaphorically a similar moment of transformation for you where uh, it doesn't have to be as grandiose, but before you were one version of yourself and after you were another. Well, I told you about one. Right. So my friend's suicide and then encountering my teacher, you know, and those were a few years yeah. apart, but they were they were both uh, events in kind of my spiritual development in my practice. Um, 
I, I politically, I mean, this book, uh, for example, is really shaped by my experiences of mass rebellion and sort of moments being at Seattle in 1999, being at, you know, like there, there were a series of sort of big protest movements I was a part yeah. of, um, and kind of most recently the George Floyd rebellion and a lot of different kinds of mass actions in between. And these moments where a mass protest sort of really kind of destabilizes the normality of the state and property. And it really kind of cracks things open in what people are able to imagine. I think most recently we saw this in terms of like abolition, you know, as a relative, the idea of abolishing prisons and abolishing police was a relatively mm-hmm. marginal idea of serious radicals, mostly black radicals, but also various multiracial communists and anarchists and others. Uh, and then the George Floyd rebellion abolition suddenly was like taken up by thousands and thousands of teenagers arguing about it on social media. Mm-hmm. And like that, that rebellions can really crack open I- our idea of what's possible. And so those have all been very influential in shaping my politics and in shaping who I am. Um, yeah, and probably I also told you about my dad's death. Probably also had a big impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that there are multiple. When when these when these big political moments happen, is it that you are introduced to new ideas or is it something beyond intellectual that it, changes? It be, becomes possible to think differently about radical ideas that previously seemed abstract. Okay. E- think, including for you, not just right. collectively. I think uh, many people are introduced for the first time, but it's very rare for political ideas to come around that I haven't heard of. You know, like I, sure. I follow their development over the course of years. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm right communist theory. I pay a lot of attention to the <laughs> right, emergence right, of right. radical ideas. But um, but suddenly, like a radical idea that previously was like, I uh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, sure. I mean, abolition I was much closer to and more loyal to, but others that just seemed very abstract or very a little puzzling would really make like a deep rooted visceral sense in the context of an uprising. And that it's possible for people to stay, to hold fast to that, to like remember that um, between now and the next uprising. So like be to like everything we call society, yeah, it could break right open. And it could break open in so many different ways. And that what is possible beyond that, we haven't begun to really think about. Like, that's what rebellions have to teach us. Yeah. But you have begun to think about it. Sure. I mean, I make up stories, but we, we will have to discover it together. That's the only, that's the only way forward. Yeah. What's a way you, like, hope to grow? Like, the, the, the idea of abolition as I understand it and that comes out through the book and even just the title um, are like, are so inspiring, but they're so big. And I'm wondering if there's a thing for you that you're like a, a problem that you're rolling around in your brain that you're looking to like have light shed on in the next couple of years when it comes to a lot of the political or personal or the way you relate to politics. Oh, there are so many of them. Um, Well, like one, one, um, do you want more theoretical, more practical, more emotional? Yeah, probably more like personal, personal. Uh, well, the basic task is to figure out how to be kind. Like that's yeah. th- that's that's what it all boils down to. That's what we're all here for. And so, you know, I have my own learning edges around that. Like, 
when I'm defensive and hungry and stressed out and tired, uh, when, you know, things are not going as I want them to, like, uh, bringing some gentleness to that situation is, you know, is a big, is a big learning edge for me. Yeah. And that's a thing that you've been, that's an edge you've been wearing down for decades, basically. Yeah. It becomes obvious to me, like different facets of it become obvious to me. Like I'm at helping to edit this magazine and I've had a couple of fights with editors and I recently realized that all of the fights I've had with editors have boiled down to situations where other people had authority over me, but that that authority was fundamentally ambiguous. It was really never clear what mm. they would get to decide and what I would get to decide. And that ambiguous authority can be very provoking for me. It can be very like, ah. Yeah, and and that that's a that's a real challenge, and that's not something I knew that I struggled with before a few weeks ago, um, and and so the, in these moments I was like unkind, and I'm spent the you know a few weeks trying to figure out why, and that's what I came up with. That's great, and that I mean that feels like something right out of the book, almost yeah. the kind of thing you would struggle with in a communist society. Exactly. 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 Where, you know, we're all in it together and we're all trying to figure it out together. And that makes it very ambiguous to figure out, you know, it's just got to be stressful. That is the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Emmy O'Brien. Thank you to Aman Abdelhadi. Please read everything for everyone. Check out Emmy's work on Patreon, her own Patreon. That's in the show notes. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. Impossible, you can do miracles. Miracles, you can do them. Have faith, you are human. Only human. And human beings, they do miracles.